All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us, uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast with your hosts, Jared Handley and me, Chris Winder. Just two nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is the place, and nerds run the world. Without further ado... All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans podcast. Today, as our special guest, we have author Rhett Bruno. This is where Chris or uh, our other co-host might cheer and, and, and clap, so I'll do it for them, because it's just me today uh, due to some technical difficulties. But uh, Rhett Bruno is a USA Today best-selling author of epic science fiction and many great anthologies. He's been writing since before he can remember, remember, ooh, speak much, um, scribbling down what he thought were epic stories when he was young intent on showing his friends and family. He currently works at an architecture firm after graduating from Syracuse University, but that hasn't stopped him from recording the tales bouncing around inside his head. So did we miss anything, Rat? Anything that we didn't get right? No, I think you covered pretty much everything. That's because I cheated and I took it all from your author bio on Amazon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the easiest way. Uh, no, that's what I would have done. All right. I, that's one thing we learned in the infantry was keep it simple. <laughs> All right. So the other part of the introduction, dear listener, as we mentioned how we first found them. So I actually first um, heard of Rhett from the Oracle of All Things Good and Bookish, the great and powerful Bezos, master of the Zon. Um, I've seen his books around, but when we started booking our next uh, round of podcasts, Steve Bellalou, and I'm probably butchering his name, so I apologize in advance, but uh, he, he mentioned that you were an author he knew and that we had to have you on as a guest. And since he did our podcast logo as a favor, I figured, how can I say no? So, so that is Rhett Bruno. And yeah, I'm sorry. Steve is, Steve is actually a co-author of mine now, so I'm glad wow, that Steve. he recommended me for this. It would be awkward if he didn't. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I so no, normally we would have a, a Chris enter something funny about how he met you, but I, I'm not the funny one of this podcast, just the funny looking one. So we're going to have to move on to the, to the all-important religion question. So Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Um, I've actually always been Star Wars. That is the right answer. I mean, I think I'm also the perfect age because, you know, I was kind of, I guess I was nine or 10 when episode one first came out. So I was in that new wave of Star Wars fans that they captured with the new movies. Right. That makes sense. So, so there was really, really no way out of it. I mean, I did watch Star Trek with my dad all the time growing up, but it wasn't, it, didn't, it wasn't mine. Whereas, you know, Star Wars coming back was kind of, my age group. 
trying to remember when the new Star Wars came back when they redid those. I don't yeah, remember so what I was so doing. It was, it was 99 when episode one came out and they remastered all the old ones. So I obviously watched all those all in a row for the first time. And then episode one. So in 1999, let's see, what was I doing? I was doing the weekend warrior thing in the army and in, in high school since I graduated in 2000. <laughs> so I guess, I guess I just wasn't cool enough or I was too busy wrestling or something. I don't know. Cause, but I don't remember watching that one in the theaters. I watched it on DVD later. So. Oh, wow. All right. So what is it about science fiction as a genre that you love? Um, I mean, I've always been drawn to it. I started out writing fantasy, and I'm actually back to writing some fantasy. But just with science fiction, it's always been the games I like to play, my favorite types of movies. And I kind of never really wrote it until I got to college and sort of dedicated myself to reading more science fiction. Because, you know, in high school, you kind of have to read what they tell you. So I never really got into reading science fiction. I liked it everywhere else. So I started reading all like the Golden Age science fiction stuff, a lot of Star Wars books, and just really got into it. And I mean, I write more science fiction that isn't maybe hard science fiction, but more about the human element kind of thing. So that's that's my main focus and love for it is kind of how you're able to put humans into these extraordinary circumstances that kind of could be plausible and twist their stories from there. So that's kind of always been my drawing to science fiction was that, you know, you could kind of take it anywhere, but it always is based in a lot of real stuff. Okay. The, the sheer possibilities of it seems to be the standard answer from everybody, both those that write it and those that are just fans. So what is uh, your first memory of watching, reading, or playing games in the genre? I think, I don't know if it's my first memory, but it's the one that really stands out. It's sitting on my computer desk watching my dad play the original StarCraft. As, As far as a game, I just remember how cool that freaking game was and thinking he was good at it. And then like a year later when I was actually like old enough to kind of figure it out, I realized how bad he was at it, (laughs) (laughs) which which was also a lot of fun. (laughs) So did you ever play against him? No, he, he never made it that far. I think he made it to like mission five and couldn't beat it and made me think it was impossible. And it wasn't. (laughs) Once I got older, but yeah, that was a great game and kind of, really sells you on the whole space opera thing. So that was definitely an early memory. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I, I think, so my mom was against um, like Xboxes, Nintendo's, all that kind of stuff as a kid. So we never had that. We, we had like an old computer that was old, even by our standards, like as a Commodore 64. I think we had like Boulder Dash and Pitfall and some other old, <laughs> old, old games. So I didn't actually start playing sci-fi games until I got out of the army and bought an Xbox because there was the Halo. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, but, but I always read the books. I loved, uh, I loved reading. So it was always the Star Wars, what they call legends now, but yeah. it's just Star Wars at the time. So I, uh, I've read many of those books. There's um, some bad right. ones, but a lot of them are actually really good books. Yeah, the the problem with it was that they weren't universally consistent. That always bugs me because yeah. I, I read so quickly that it was like, wait a minute, how can Han Solo be here when last week on the timeline he was here and you said it takes X number of, you know, whatever to get there. And so like sometimes <laughs> I would be like shaking my fist at the sky. And of course the other people who who weren't nerds would just laugh at me like, dude, get over it. It's just the book. Yeah. Well that's that's your mistake was reading them fast in order. I kind of 
<laughs> I waited long enough and then, then would Google which ones were actually good and then, then read them kind of just as their own standalone stories because there's, I mean, there's hundreds of them. So you got to <laughs> try to pick and choose. Yeah, I used to, uh, I got to that point where I had to start doing that, like figuring out which ones were better, but I, I measured the books and how many yards I had to mow to be able to buy the next one. <laughs> so that was before the government shut it all down and made you get like permits to breathe the air and, <laughs> yeah. and let alone start the lawnmower. So, so how did you transition from your love of the genre into writing novels in it? Uh, so I'll go back. I actually self-published like a fantasy novel when I was probably 17 or 18. I wrote it from like 16 to 18. I mean, as anyone's first novel written at that age likely is, it was, it was pretty terrible. And I got kind of taken advantage of by a vanity press back then. That was before you could just publish wherever you wanted. And, you know, it just kind of didn't do anything. I wouldn't say it bombed because it never had a chance of doing anything, not with a vanity press like that. And, you know, I kind of saw it. I saw some bad views and I was like, I'm going to actually take this seriously and get into reading and, and researching, writing a little more, you know, kind of do the things people always say to do learn your genre, read your genre, get critiqued and stuff like that. Cause I mean, what all I did with that was really show my family, my English teacher, people that were always going to say everything was good. Right. And I guess it was in college when I kind of had the idea for the circuit. And I went, I went to an architecture school, which if anyone knows about architecture school, it's brutal as far as the hours you have to work. So, I mean, I was there for five years and I finished book one by the end of it. So, I mean, that's a long time to write one book. (laughs) But but I finished book one by the end of it. It was my first science fiction novel and I kind of wanted to pursue that traditional model. And again, I didn't really know anything about being indie versus traditional or anything back then. I just, you know, wanted to get this book out there and I got it with a small press and it came out and got for a debut, got really good reviews, but unfortunately that small press was terrible at editing and they were so bad at it that I didn't trust them to do the sequels, but I also didn't want to have to pay a whole bunch of money to do the sequels. So I was actually able to get Diversion Books, which was a a bigger small press out of New York City and one that isn't really that sort of ebook mill that the other one was taking advantage of authors. And they took on the whole series and re-released it. And that's what you see today is, is that whole series. And so that was my first debut book. A lot of research and everything went into that. It's kind of, it's dark space opera. It's a pretty complicated story with four characters that bounce back and forth. So, I mean, I really went for it with a debut. And, you know, I would imagine if I could do it over again, I would have tried to tackle a story that was simpler. But, that, but, you know, I really got into the 60s sort of golden age sci-fi stuff. So that's how it's heavily influenced by those types of writers. And, you know, those books tend to be a little bit complicated with the world. And it's a lot about human beings and, you know, how we inhabit the universe. So that that's kind of the story took off from there. And I wanted to do something that was that was dark. You know, that's I've always been into that sort of science fiction, the Blade Runnery sort of vibe, and so that's what I pursued: is this dark space opera, so like think Star Wars, but for only adults kind of thing was my intention. 
Okay. So what do you think has been the single largest influence on your writing? Is there any one author, teacher, uh, series, whatever that you tried, um, that you've enjoyed and tried to emulate or an experience that you had as a child? What, uh, what is your, your influence when you're writing? I don't think I ever really try to emulate anything exactly. I feel like I more take from a lot of different things, probably without even realizing it. Obviously, Star Wars is a big one, but if you read, there's some names that are callbacks to like favorite Star Wars characters and stuff like that, just because that kind of stuff is fun. But I mean, if you read The Circuit and you read Star Wars, you're never going to read a Star Wars book that kind of goes to the to that brutal of a place. Okay. And that, that dark of a place with kind of the the human condition. And so I think I took from a lot, a lot of different things. Blade Runner is always an influence and Philip K. Dick's stuff is always an influence. Like I said, all the golden age guys are what I really got into while I was in college, even though they were older and you know, a lot of them don't stand up. They have a lot of weak character building. I, I love the way they build their world. So I would say I kind of tried to take, take their sort of style and infuse it with strong character focused story work instead. Okay. And then of course, and of course movies and video games. I mean, I'm the type of person who I don't read very fast. I don't read that much, but I consider all sorts of storytelling to be storytelling in the end. That's what writing is. It's just a f- form of it. So I definitely take a lot of influences from video games and from movies and kind of paying attention to how they let a story unfold. And personally, that's how I view it, that that is as beneficial towards writing a book as reading books, too. It all kind of leads to that same storytelling place. Okay. So this is the part of the... uh the interview, dear listener, where I list out the various series that uh, Rhett has written. Wow, that's a tongue twister right there. So we have the Circuit Trilogy, Bridge Across the Stars, a sci-fi bridge originally anthology, At the Helm, a sci-fi bridge anthology, which has volume one, two, and three, The Lone Vigil, a sci-fi short story. Uh, was that in any of the anthologies I just listed, or is that literally um, just so this, this Long Vigil is actually in one of the At the Helms, but it was originally on Pirelli and Sci-Fi, okay. and it's probably one of my most acclaimed works by accident, sort of. I just kind of have placed it in a lot of different places, and it wound up getting nominated for a Cannabis cannabis Award, I think it's spelled, and stuff. So it's just a short little story, but it's probably one of my favorite things I've written. Okay. Then we have the Superheroes and Vile Village Anthology Series. Two authors, one book, co-writing, murder-free. I like the title. Very evocative. <laughs> uh, we have the Buried Goddess Saga. Now, you were telling me something about this um, series pre-show, so do you want to share it with the listeners? Yeah, so the Buried Goddess Saga is actually pretty interesting. A few people might have seen it go up on Amazon, but it kind of went up on Amazon, and we immediately got an offer from Audible Studios. And they kind of wanted to do their own style, so we took book down pretty book one down pretty fast, and now we've re-edited it and reworked it, and with with help of my agent, and we were looking into Forty Seven North, but we're gonna just release it alongside Audible Studios. It'll be sort of a experimental simultaneous release audio ebook, straight onto WhisperSync kind of thing, so everyone could experience it in any way straight off, and. So book one will be coming out in November, and then books two and three will be following a month or so after that, each one, and we'll take it from there. But it's it's a pretty cool and unexpected series. 
I mean, it's my return back to fantasy after a long time of kind of giving up on it because of what happened with that Vanity Press. But I co-authored it with Steve Buller as Jamie Castle is his pen name. And I mean, I think we've taken it to some pretty cool places in the way we bounce back and forth with the energy between our characters. So I really think people are going to like that. Oh, man, I thought that was with J.R. Castle. <laughs> I, was, I mixed it up. No. So, there. Yeah, so Jimmy Castle was first. <laughs> okay. Wow. We're going to have to rib her on that one. All yeah. right. So we then we have the Bastards of Titan series. But uh, I saw that on your author page, and it looks like Amazon ate it. So what's up with that one? So the Bastard of Titan series was a book called Titanborn and its sequel From Ice to Ashes. And that series had was with Random House, a, a branch of Random House. And first book did pretty well, and both books did really well critically, but they never really sold. It's, a t- it's tough with a digital-only imprint, no matter how big the publisher. Right. So even, even though I got to go to Comic-Con for them and stuff, like, they never really took off sales-wise. So I actually bought back the rights and sold them to Audible Studios, and they'll be releasing either later this year or next year the full a full four-book series now. I had released like a, a semi-finished third book to f- finalize a series because Random House didn't want to keep working on it with me, so I kind of just wanted to be done with it. And then re- they realized that they would let me buy back the rights for you know a hefty price, but I think worth it to be able to tell the story I always wanted to tell with those books. So you'll be able to get that whole series with Audible Studios. And as of right now, we're hoping to get R.C. Bray or Ray Porter to narrate it. Okay. R.C. Bray is, uh, does amazing work. Now, who's the other one? And Ray Porter. Why do I know so that? He's done the, uh, cause he's done the Baba verse and a bunch of, ah. a bunch of other things, but he, he's, he's real, he's real good. <laughs> I'll just say that. Okay. The, um, the next, uh, book that you've written is the tales from the canyons of the damned volume to, uh, 20, which is an anthology. So I understand you just have one story in the collection. Yeah, I just have a story that I sold to be in that collection. Okay. Then we have Unbound 1, Lost Friends, Volume 1, another anthology. And then we have the Isenda uh, books. We have Curse of the Sleeping Dragon and Sting of the Sapphire Blade. Now, you want to tell us about those ones? So those I actually talked about. Those That's the fantasy series I saw published when I'm young, when I was young. So that publisher, actually, the owners all got arrested for stealing money from authors and they're all in jail now. So I actually got those rights back (laughs) without really doing anything. And maybe one day I'll go back and edit them to be at the level of writing that I am at now compared to when I was 16. But, you know, right now they're just kind of sitting there. And if I ever start a Patreon or something, I might use them as a little gift to, I mean, I think it might be interesting to show readers or even other writers where someone might start in their career versus where they are when people are actually starting to read their work. Okay. Now I know um, author Glenn Stewart did that with a book he'd written at 19 and he ended up contracting with Terry Mixon to finish it for him. I'm drawing a blank on the name of the series, but I will. Oh, is that, that, that's, that's what that series is. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Let me write, make a show note. Um, but yeah, he's uh, it was one he started when he was 20 or 19, excuse me, and then he put it aside and he, he just didn't have time. So he contracted. So uh, Terry's jokes that there were three authors 
19 uh, year old Glenn Stewart, current Glenn Stewart in him. And they sort is, of, is it the, the vigilante series? Yeah. It started as a duology. Um, okay. and then it grew. The characters are going to be, um, um, in a, in a trilogy on top of that. So, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting approach to it, contracting someone else to come back behind you years later. So I actually <laughs> would love to do that. I think I talked to one person about potentially doing that with that fantasy series, just so, you know, might as well do something with it, but I probably won't ever really do anything, but give it away to people for free just to see what it was like. That well, I mean, if you have somebody co-write with you, it'll change enough that I think you could probably do both. But well, I don't really want to look at it, so I would want I would want someone else <laughs> to just kind of take it and make it modern and good. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So if if you're listening, dear dear listener, and you want to reach out, his contacts will be in the show notes, and maybe you can make him an offer. <laughs> make him an offer he can't refuse. All right. Yeah, I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> While all of those sound uh, like amazing books, um, today we're going to focus on the Circuit series. I picked the series when I looked at its backlist and I saw the uh, orange bestseller tag on it. It caught my eye. So I figured, hey, why not? So how did you come up with the idea or premise for this series? Where did the spark of inspiration come from? So the spark for the series is actually pretty dumb. <laughs> I was kind of wanting to write a sci-fi book. This was my first series that I started. So I was, you know, just trying to figure out what the hell I wanted to write. And I guess it was Star Trek I was thinking of. And I was just sitting there wondering how the hell do they always have gravity on their ships? And there is an answer and it's just as stupid as the question. They have some made up thing that they put in the armor of their ships that creates gravity that they never mentioned or anything, but it's it's right there in the Wikipedia to make sure that no one could question that. Okay. And so that was kind of where the first idea came from. I decided I would have this element, which in the book I call Gravitum, discovered in the mantle of Earth in the long in the past. And we would have mined it so extensively because this when you electrify this element, it they were able to create artificial gravity fields with it. And you know, that was coming along with the studies of people living in space in stuff and in low gravity conditions where their eyes were popping out and all that kind of kind of stuff. So all all those things kind of fed into this idea to create that element, which was the basis of the setting that mining that element would cause Earth to be destroyed. Or not destroyed, but it would kind of ruin Earth, make it uninhabitable and like a molten planet. And people would then live in our own solar system. Because of Gravitum, they're able to live on ships or other planets with full Earth-level gravity. So under the full comfort of what they were used to. So it's kind of like an unnecessary drug. Like people are so used to this to gravity, they don't, they wind up getting addicted to using this element. And so that was kind of the basis of forming this idea. And I took it from there and created the circuit, which is where the people live now. It's been in the book, I kind of estimated at 500 years since Earth became unlivable and people moved out to their colonies in the solar system. And so in the circuit, there are these massive transportation ships that kind of thread around all the major colonies and deliver supplies and materials to keep humanity afloat. That's what they were built for. They were this 
grand final achievement of old earth before they couldn't live there anymore. And so they're a neutral party. They're just always forming a circuit around the solar system, delivering supplies from the different colonies because it's not earth anymore. All the colonies and all the moons and planets, they don't have everything at them. They don't all have water, etc. So this circuit is delivering all the stuff to them and allowing for transport along it. And the ships were designed with a special solar sail technology to allow them to move faster than any other ships. So it's the fastest way around as well. So that is the premise of, of the setting. And the book takes place after all that is established and everyone's living on this circuit as if it's the only way to live. And that's where the book starts and where our characters come into it when things are sort of starting to fall into chaos and war after a religious group who worships the earth like a god takes over most of the colonies of the circuit. Okay. Well, looking at the clock, we're at the 24-minute mark, so we are going to take a brief moment where we shamelessly shill for the man and pause for a commercial break. Nearly a century ago, humanity was contacted by intelligent alien life. It didn't go as we expected. Our primitive technology, minimal resources, and unsophisticated society was laughably commonplace on the galactic scale. They didn't need us. At least, not until they saw us fight. In the midst of talks, terrorists killed the alien ambassador. The ambassador's mercenary forces attacked in retribution and millions died. Humanity fought back. We learned that of the thousands of races in the galaxy, only 36 had the will and temperament to make war for money. We were the 37th. Soon, our mercenary companies took up the battle cry, kill aliens, get paid, and get paid we did. It's now 100 years later, and not everyone is happy with our success as a mercenary race. In fact, some want us dead. This is the Four Horsemen universe, where a personal battle mech suit and a magnetic accelerator cannon may mean the difference between living in riches and dying on some alien shore. Think you have what it takes? Find out at chriskennedypublishing.com. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through the interlude. We are back with author um, Rhett Bruno of the Circuit fame. So we were uh, you just got done telling us how you came up with the idea for this series. So, you know, that sort of um, has a very much the uh, vibe of The Expanse, which is I think James Corey wrote that in the TV series. So is that intentional? No, I technically was writing that before The Expanse even existed. I might have even published book one before The Expanse existed. Um, so it was kind of this unintentional thing. And then The Expanse came out. And I read book one. And I was like, huh, we kind of did something similar. A space opera set in our own solar system. And I mean, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna, i imagine that's probably not the, that original of, a, of an idea. I'm pretty sure guys back in the 50s and 60s were doing the same thing. Okay, so the, the Expanse is older, but I, I didn't know what it was until the show came out. But they definitely have a similar sort of vibe in being this dark, gritty space opera set in our own solar system with kind of Earth looming there. And the only main difference is in theirs, it's kind of a takeoff of our society now. And in mine, society breaks apart when Earth breaks apart. So it's sort of this basically new setting in our same solar system. 
Okay. So, you know, that was one of the questions I had for you was that when I was skimming through this, the novel in preparation uh, for this interview was how gritty it was that that stood out to me. So what is it about the darkness that appeals to you? (laughs) Honestly, I don't really know. I just, I always like those science fiction stories that really push humans to their limit and kind of explore exactly what we're capable of and you know, and I still love the lighter stuff. I, I've always loved Star Wars and everything like that. But just when I wanted to write something for my first time, I kind of, I wanted to go all out on a story. And again, I know it's probably not for everyone. It starts off pretty dark and it doesn't really move from there. It's not a book about heroes. It's kind of a book about anti-heroes. There is no real hero or villain in the story. At least you don't even, you don't really know who the villain would might be until towards the end of the series. You're just kind of seeing these broken people in this broken world dealing with the hand that's given to them. And the mysterious force behind it all is leading them all towards a path towards war that none of them really want to be on. And so that, that was, I mean, the main focus was just trying to push these characters to their very limits of where they could be. Okay, so uh, I hope you talk to your therapist about all this. <laughs> the um, I also detected some shades of the uh, Battlestar Galactica in your series, the uh, the darker, grittier remake. Um, so I did some more digging, and there is review written about your series from the from your tenure on the USA Today bestseller list uh, that also made that comparison. So was that intentional? Did you intentionally sort of go for that BSG vibe? Um. So I'm going to be honest right now. I've only really watched that show a few times. I know, I know that's terrible, (laughs) Um, but I've seen it. I would say, I mean, Adam is the Android character and he has those red eyes like the Cylons, but other, otherwise, I mean, I've seen the show. It's, it's gritty. Maybe it was in my mind when I was writing this, but I kind of just was going for my own thing. I didn't really know Battlestar Galactica at all. Okay. So I was, I was going <laughs> to ask you, what was it about BSG that inspired you? But uh, I guess <laughs> we know it was not. So uh, bollocks to them. All right. So uh, I found another editorial review uh, that compared your book to the worlds of Firefly. Um, was that intentional? And uh, if so, how close to the iconic series did you skirt? Um, so, I mean, I would, I think that really the only similarity to Firefly at all is the fact that at a certain point, there's a ship with a crew, <laughs> <laughs> but there isn't. This isn't even that type of space opera where it follows one ship with a crew. It kind of follows these four stories that intersect and come apart and intersect. So there's not never really this this crew of people that all fly together. You know that image you get from Firefly, and I mean, Firefly has that lighthearted feel. So I know exactly the review you're talking about. And it's the same. It's a, a same review that called the book sexist. <laughs> so I don't know how far they actually read, even though they didn't give it a bad review. But they called it. They they thought felt it was sexist because the main female character Sage, who is actually my favorite character in the whole book, and you know it follows four characters. So the focus is on these four guys, and she is kind of the pawn of one of the leaders of this religious order. And so she gets taken advantage of, and they felt that that 
was kind of a sexist thing to have the main female character be someone who was taken advantage of and sort of sexually abused by this man. And I mean, that was the main part of her character. A lot of her storyline is breaking away from that control and sort of going from just being a mindless killer into becoming a character because the characters all have very specific arcs. And that's really hers is going from being this broken person who was broken by the loss of her husband into becoming an assassin and kind of her fight to become human again. And then while at the same time, the Android character is fighting to become is trying is a robot trying to become human, really trying to learn what and understand humans. So that was the intent with her. It was the intent was for her to make that growth and also to echo the other storylines. But that review is a kind of a weird one. And that makes me feel like they didn't actually read the book. All right. Well, <laughs> boo on them. So you mentioned earlier that you, uh, that you love the pulps and that inspired you more than anything. So how do you think overall that that affected the stories that you tell? So I think world wise, and you'll see that in a lot of reviews that, this reminds them of the of like Heinlein and Philip K. Dick and, and all those guys and the way they they built their worlds. And I don't know if I could put a finger on, on exactly how it is, but I think it's just this study of humanity over focusing entirely on the technology. It's a little bit molding of both, but it's a lot of focusing on on the humanity of their situation. It's tough to explain, <laughs> but I definitely can see why people think that. And I mean, that was the stuff I was reading heavily at the time. And there are a lot of those books that are set in the asteroid belt where a lot of this book is and on Titan where a lot of this book takes place. So I think that also helps with people kind of relating it back to those books, but they definitely have that sort of 60s sci-fi vibe, but with a character focused story instead of a science or exploration focused story. Okay. So the Circuit Trilogy books are clearly a series. You said so in the title. So where do you see it going? You have three books out. Uh, what's next for the characters? Will the trilogy grow into something more? Um, so I'm actually talking with an author right now about potentially working on a sequel series with me because I I have too many new things kind of in the fire with Audible Studios to really risk going back to that, this series. And I mean, the circuit is an interesting, had an interesting path when it was first released as three separate books with diversion books. It didn't really do that well. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to market. Obviously, they're a small publisher. They didn't really market. It got good reviews from Kirkus and stuff like that. But, you know, that's about the extent of what it could do. And then and when I was working with Random House on those, on my new books, I kind of, tried to learn more about marketing. I tried to meet more authors. That was another thing. I really didn't talk to any other authors. And now I run and work with Sci-Fi Bridge and Fantasy Bridge. And I help promote a lot of authors. And I help meet a lot of authors who are willing to promote me in return. And it kind of has helped me reinvigorate my career after things didn't go so well with Random House on a marketing scale. So I relaunched the Circuit Series as that box set that you see. The one, the one that has more reviews than the rest of the books combined, and so right. because that's sort of become the relaunch of the story, and where I've seen a lot of new readers come from and reach a lot of readers. I mean, it's sold 
a lot more copies than the other three books combined. And then, of course, it's now released on audio with Jefferson Mays narrating, who does The Expanse as well. So he was just this perfect fit. So right now, the way I see it is its own three book story. Even if I did another one, I would probably have to get permission from the publisher of the circuit to do something for them to let me do it. Cause I don't think I would want to do it with a publisher again anyway. So there's a lot of moving parts to it and it's likely that it won't continue, but I plan to keep writing that sort of gritty space opera. That's similar to it because it's stuff that I don't really see out there outside of the military sci-fi area. I mean, maybe it's out there, but I don't see it selling that like crazy. And I mean, I, this isn't military science fiction. It's space opera, just like how The Expanse is. Like, yeah, there's military in it. But I mean, I don't I don't think you would consider The Expanse military sci-fi if you know it. No, I wouldn't. All right. Yeah. So that's my plan is to focus on that sort of stuff. And then I'm working on a bunch of projects with Jamie Castle we're kind of co-creating worlds and those will have more of that, more of a lighthearted star Warsy kind of feel because like I said, I love both types of science fiction and so does he. And it's kind of, they're fun to write. So it's fun to do it in a team and kind of create these unexpected storylines because the way we work together is we'd like to surprise each other. So I think it leads to a pretty cool and unexpected storyline. Okay. It's a good way to do co-writing. So yeah. the um, we all know that each literary universe has its own internal, uh, internally consistent technology and rules of science. So what sorts of tech can readers expect from the Circuit series? Uh, FTL, ray guns, teleporters? Um, so the Circuit series, I tried, you know, it, I wouldn't say it's realistic. I tried to make it feel as real as possible. And I mean, culturally and as far as, where humans could wind up and how they would treat each other. I think it's real in that sense. It has that sort of grounded feel. Technology-wise, I use that new element to sort of create a lot of new situations. The new element is actually very dangerous in his raw state, so it causes this disease called the Blue Death. And so that's a big part of it, and it can also be weaponized in, you know, in overloading it, that kind of stuff. Technology-wise, though, I mean, you're going to see stuff that is is similar to The Expanse, which is funny because I didn't know it existed yet, but just a, a focus on gravity in battle and all sorts of situations where gravity is turned on and turned off is, is a major part of it. But otherwise, you know, it's your pretty, pretty typical grounded science fiction stuff and a cybernetic arm. <laughs> all right. So is the arm sentient? Has the singularity occurred? <laughs> no, the arm is on the main female character, and it just is a pretty badass thing that she uses. And it's kind of also echoes the android character who's made of the same type of material. And as far as technology-wise, he's basically the, the main technology piece in the whole book. And it's kind of his growth from basically being childlike to... <clears throat> being sentient okay so you know you mentioned that you've gone to um conventions and that you you interact with your fans so are you worried as you keep writing more and more books that eventually you're going to find a fan who knows more about uh the circuit series than you do 
and they're going to not understand why? Um, at this, at this point, because I wrote it a few years back, I would imagine there probably are some people that, that just read it and then it came out in audio and then listened to it and probably know it even better than I do. There was actually someone who sent me a message about, they, they thought they found a plot hole. I was like, wait, maybe they did. And it turns out it was just something that wasn't mentioned, but it, it was an implied and in there, but there definitely probably will be people that soon know it better than I do and really get in there. And that's another thing about why I'm not eager to kind of write a trilogy series alone because I tend to move on from a series. Like this story finishes and you'll see that in reviews, like book one does end on sort of a cliffhanger, but when you read the whole thing in a row, which is really how I always intended it to be read. But as you know, you can't really publish a book that long as a debut author. No one's going to give it a try if it's that long. So that's why I didn't do that. But it's really meant to be read all in a row, and it has a beginning and, a, and an end. It leaves open four sequels, just in case I ever wanted to go back. But, I mean, this is, this is a story that ends, which I think is kind of cool in a market where a lot of series just keep going. They don't really ever end. Like, you know, I can tell you this story is ends. I don't really intend to continue it. And if I do, it'll be a spinoff that's sort of in the future and its own new story. Okay. Um, so your backlist shows that you've co-written a book about co-authoring. So is this a series that you uh, might consider then? I think you already answered that, but is that something if someone approached you, you would say, well, okay, maybe I'll give it a try, or are you hamstrung by, by contracts with the uh, the other publisher? Um, so I'm hamstrung only in that they have the right to look first for a, a, a while, and I just don't even want to deal with that. I re- I'm trying to talk to them about if I could do that would they really care and i imagine they would let me do something else i have talked to one author about working on a sequel series with me so that i could focus on my newer stuff that i co-write with jamie castle and that i write on my own because i have a few things that are all kind of hitting at the same time and if if any of them go forward and it's i'll be too busy to kind of work on that alone so that's why i'm looking into that and yeah as you'll see in that co-authoring book you me and jamie have kind of gotten into a really good groove with co-authoring okay and i i recommend it especially as of right now and soon i'm going to be working less but as of right now i'm working a five a full-time job and being an architect is kind of a creative job so it's pretty draining so it is tough to write fast enough to keep up with today's market so that was sort of the reason why we got into this co-writing thing in the first place and then it's exploded from there. I mean, we've written four books together already in a year, so it's been working pretty well. All right. So this book doesn't have aliens in it. Why not? And do you see this changing if you uh, if you go back to it? So no, the book doesn't have aliens in it, and none none of my books that are published so far have aliens in it, or that have ever been published. Um, actually, I don't even. That one of my short stories has aliens in it, but I always kind of have gone after this sort of grounded Blade Runner type feel. (laughs) And in the circuit, if I ever did keep it going, I don't want to spoil anything, but I think there is an opportunity for a first contact to be made in the future. And I'm currently working on a series with Jamie Castle that is all about first contact during the Cold War. So 
aliens will be coming, but in this circuit, the alien really is the main Android character and it's written from his point of view. A lot of the book is, so it's sort of this alien look into a robot's mind. And that was, that was what I wanted to focus on for the circuit was him being the most alien thing. Okay. So, uh, well, obviously you don't have aliens. You just mentioned you have Android. So let's discuss this. Do you uh, address the singularity? Will Skynet go live and kill us all? I can't respond to that without spoiling things. <laughs> uh. But the Android does move towards being self-aware and, yeah, you just would have to read the book to see where he leads. But writing Adam was a lot of fun because obviously when you're growing something from literally a child to self-aware, it's you're taking them on more of an arc than any of the other characters. So he, he was a lot of fun to write. Okay. Fair enough. We don't want spoilers because not everyone who's going to be listening to this has read your book. So I've skimmed the reviews as I always do. They help the right readers find the right book. So dear listener, please be kind and speak your minds on the reviewing platforms. So your omnis, omnibus for this series has 202 reviews, almost all of them four and five stars. Um, the negative reviews seem to think that you're you got the science wrong. So were you intending to write a hard hard SF or, or just tell a fun story? No, no. And I think, you know, that's kind of the thing you get on, on Amazon. It's not even in the hard science fiction category. And I mean, yeah, it's for the average reader and most science fiction readers, the they'll breeze right through the science. I mean, I tried to make it as real as possible. And of course there's a fake element in it to begin with. So it kind of, the element plays with physics to start with. So sort of it's tough to quantify what, what would be real in that sort of sense, but the more grounded aspect of this series, because it is space opera and, you know, space opera is, it's not military sci-fi it's space opera and that you're not space opera without ships flying around and fighting in space, that kind of stuff. So there is some high drama and I will say the book is written with an intentional amount of high drama and you'll see some reviews. It is kind of Shakespearean in the way the, even the people talk. It's very, it's very high drama sort of series mixed in with being gritty and pretty dark. So it can be a little strange and you'll see that in, in some of the bad reviews too, that it isn't for everyone and it isn't, I mean, it's sort of, what you get when you experiment with a debut novel, you don't get something that fits the markets perfectly. So that's why I'm pretty proud of the book. Cause I think that I created something story-wise that's pretty unique. And so, yeah, you're always going to get those people who don't think the hard science is hard enough. Okay. Fair enough. I cheated for my debut novel and I wrote in someone else's universe. So there wasn't a lot of experimentation. <laughs> um, yeah, that's <laughs> – looking back, I like I said, I probably should have gone for a story that was more more simple. But you see, even in trying to explain the story, it's tough because it is four characters and it's not the type of book where the four characters start off separate but then all come together. And then, you know, they're it's space out where they're on this ship together like Luke and Anne and everyone. It's It's a story where they all come together and then they all – shit goes crazy and they all get blown back apart and then a few of them wind up back together and their storylines kind of slowly keep intersecting and intersecting until the end. All right. Well, obviously you can't please them all and not everyone actually cares about the right science like you mentioned. Um, And I don't say that as a knock uh, on the book or people that like hard SF, just, you know, you, you, 
by the genres that you like. Um, so if the story is fun and you've got Jedi, you can you can roll with it and still call it SF. So the um, the other major, yeah. I think for. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I, was, I think for like 99% of the readers, you know, the science and is there enough and the play with, with gravity and everything is there enough to feel like a real place. And that was my main intention is to, you know, keep story in the forefront and don't let realism, like hard science get in the way of, of that but to try to make it as plausible of a world as possible. Absolutely. So the other the other major complaint was they felt that you walked too close to the pulp era of the 1930s, which is actually the review that made me go buy the audiobook. Uh, and you've already answered that that was intentional. So do you think you're going to – I'm going to uh, – well, I don't even – 1930s, I've never read anything from. I, I, I would say got the pulp era. I mean, more, more than – yeah, more novels from like the 60s when Dick, Philip Dick and Heinlein and, and all those guys is – is where it kind of harkened back to. But yeah, there is a review I remember of saying that this is a total ripoff of something from the 30s and they might not even realize that I'm not even 30 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have absolutely, I had no idea what they're talking about and you'll always get those reviews because let's be honest, nothing is completely original anymore. Even without intending to copy something, it's possible it'll be similar. But I think what helps this book is that it's very, very character focused. So even if a lot of the world harkens back to that time, those books back then weren't that character focused. And that's sort of where it's able to stand on its own. Well, it's also entirely possible that when they said pulp era, I actually put the 1930s instead of 60s because, you know, fat fingers on the keyboard. Um, but uh, but hey, like I said, it made me, <laughs> me go out and buy the audiobook. But the um, so and since you've already answered that question, is that something that pulp era vibe that you're going to keep going with future books or have you got it out of your system? Um, so I'll be honest, when the Bastards of Titans comes out again and kind of has a big launch and is able to get more readers and stuff. It has a very similar sort of vibe. It's actually, it's kind of a Blade Runner type space opera where it takes that sort of world and brings it off of our planet. Only. Okay. And, and that was the main influence for it. But instead of hunting robots, the main character is a bounty hunter that goes after off-worlders because we're just starting to expand throughout our solar system. And just like the circuit, it's completely set in our own solar system, but it's a little different in that where the circuit is definitely character focused and it's in, but it's in third person and it bounces around between these four characters. And, you know, it's epic in scope. There's a big war, there's factions fighting, stuff like that. Titan born and the other book, those are first person books and they're kind of just real, digging deep into this guy, into the two main characters, psyches and basically character study type science fiction. Okay. So uh, moving on to the good reviews, one of the common themes I found, because I, I read through a bunch of them, not all 202, but, but a bunch of them. Um, they mentioned <laughs> that the story was fun and the characters were engaging, uh, which is what you said your, your original goal was, was to tell character driven stories. So how do you go about crafting, um, characters that your readers love do you have a secret sauce do you like go out and watch people what's the what's your secret uh so for this it was very really tough because there were the four characters so i made sure and obviously this was the first science fiction book i was trying to write so i didn't really have a method yet but i sort of made an outline not for the story but for each character 
and I outlined each one of their arcs, all of their backgrounds, and sort of their temperament and personalities. And I sort of kept that in the background as I wrote, so I could always go back and check, and not only make sure if that's something that the character would do, but make sure all four read differently. And I think that's something that I've gotten great feedback on from readers, and, and which is great because it's what I intended, but you never know if you succeed at that sort of thing, but in that they almost feel like they're reading four different authors throughout because each of the characters, even though they're in third person, read so differently in how they think about things and interact. And I think having that outline at the start really helps in, because you could always go back and look like, this character would never do that. He's from this background, you know, and put it together. So that was a really good strategy. And then, I mean, as for first-person novels, I didn't really have to do that. I, I find writing first-person to be very fun. <laughs> and to me, it's easier in that, I mean, you really get inside the character's head. And once you're there for the first few chapters, for me, you're just there with them. And it's and I didn't have a tough time keeping them in their own personality. Okay. Well, continuing with the analysis of the reviews, uh, which I look, like I said, we, we look at before buying the novels, uh, they all seem to think you nailed it with the pacing. Um, the readers felt immersed in this world, that they felt like they were uh, watching movies playing in their heads. Um, so how do you think um, you would manage to recapture that if you wrote this series with another author? Um. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm not totally sold on the idea yet. And I would be heavily involved in making sure it kept that same sort of voice. But like I said, this is this book is written in sort of its own unique Shakespearean sci-fi style. And I use that word mostly just because of, of the high drama and, and the way people talk in the book. There's It's all intentionally very high drama. And... It would be tough to capture. It's also very big on description and painting scenes, which again is, is a style of mine. I'm pretty visual writer. That's usually how I try to write to try to really make you feel like you're there in the scene. And I think that translates really well to audio, which is why it's doing well in audio. But the book itself, pacing wise, I kind of just took a unique strategy with it. And it is slow building at the start. And you'll, you'll see even some, some of the bad reviews are people who decided to give up after the first few chapters because I didn't write this as someone who knows the industry and knows you want to start off and grab people right away. I wrote this as telling a story from beginning to end, and it starts off slow, and I wanted that sort of Breaking Bad building of tension I would say Breaking Bad is a big thing of study for mine. I mean, I've watched the series a few times and I just love the way they did it. How at the start, you have no idea where the story is going to go, but you can't look away and no one's really a hero or a villain, which is a similar thing to how the circuit is. You know, everyone's painted in shades of gray, but you're going to start at this very small concentrated place and build intention, build intention throughout towards something completely unexpected. And if you just sit and keep waiting through this slow build of character growth, the explosion is going to be absolutely worth it. Okay. 
So um, speaking of this, this series, I see that your book was nominated some for some awards and won another. So you were a 2014 Pinnacle Book Achievement Award winner, a 2015 Cygnus Award finalist, and a 2015 National Indie Excellence Award finalist. So how did all of that come about? Um, I just kind of submitted it for awards. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how prestigious any of those are, but it's always pretty cool to make it to be a finalist in anything. And yeah, I mean, back then I put more stock into winning that sort of stuff because I didn't really know the industry and how to get that, get that many sales. Now I would place much more importance on, you know, getting the book in front of readers. And I think that's what I was able to start doing with this complete saga version of the book is get people to actually read this full trilogy the way I always wanted it to be read completely in, in order as one kind of big epic. Okay. So are there any updates on other forms of media besides the audiobook, potential RPGs, video games, etc.? And um, you can answer that if you've got stuff planned or what you think would be good for this series. I mean, for the circuit, I don't have anything that's tough because I do have, that publisher, I don't think they have anything with video game rights. I mean, it could be a pretty cool video game. There are the, all there's the factions throughout our solar system. It would probably be similar to the Expanse video game they're making, though. So it would probably be labeled as a ripoff. It would be tough. For my Bastards of Titans series, I actually have been talking with an indie video game maker who I went to screenwriting school with, who kind of reached out to me out of the blue saying that him and his friends wanted to make sort of an XCOM type indie science fiction game set on Titan. And he remembered reading a screenplay adaption I had made of that book back then before the book was even out or finished and remembered it being set on Titan and reached out to me and, and asked if I would be interested in them instead of having them having to create all their own new stuff, if they could maybe try to make an indie game and, release it alongside with my relaunch of the whole full series with Audible Studios so people would actually play it. And so that's what we're talking about right now is sort of an XCOM type bounty hunter story about the main character. Okay. All right. And then the, um, um, the circuit series, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we moved on to the, uh, the other questions or did we get it all? No, I think you got it all. Okay. Um, since you've written a novel in the dystopian subgenre of science fiction, what is your biggest pet peeve when you read other, uh, when you read about other happy futures? Uh, remember to speak generally. We don't uh, need to badmouth anyone because karma is a thing. I don't really read about happy futures. I, I was being facetious <laughs> since dystopian is generally not very happy. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know. I didn't even really think this was dystopian until I was told that it was. <laughs> I thought it was just kind of space opera and Earth happened to be destroyed and and stuff in the background, which, you know, now that I know is very, very, very dystopian. But I don't really read that much other dystopian stuff. I mean, I think the last one I read was, was Wool, which was really, really good but definitely a very, very different series than The Circuit. I actually have another dystopian book that hopefully will be coming out soon. It's more, 
it's something I'm trying to pursue more of a traditional publisher for, and it's on the finalist table at some UK publishers that I won't say what they are, but that would, it would be pretty awesome and perfect to land there. And it's kind of half dystopian, half utopian, if that makes sense, bouncing between two characters. So I'm very interested in that sort of stuff. I just don't read it too often because a lot of it is young adult. Then that's not really my sort of thing as far as reading. Okay. So, wow. So you don't really read that. So I'm not going to ask you who you think does dystopian right, and we'll move on. Um, the um, This is obviously a space opera. Sorry, <laughs> I had to fix, skip through to the question that weren't about, um, weren't about dystopian stuff. <laughs> so... No, that, that's okay. I, I mean, like I said, I do love dystopian stuff, and I, I watch all, all those movies just as far as reading. I kind of tend to read more space opera type type of stuff. And r- right now, I don't really have much of time to read anything, which sucks. But with work and and writing and editing and publishing, it's it's a lot. So if you're not reading it, but you said you're watching in other venues, what uh, what are you watching that you think does it right? Uh, I, I mean, the main dystopian thing I'm writing watching right now, and it sounds lame but the 100 on the cw is actually very very well done dystopian type stuff it's extremely unrealistic (laughs) it it makes the circuit seem as real as anything in the entire world but it's also a series of books they do the, the yeah and the books are totally different i haven't read the books but i read the differences and they basically completely diverge at episode like three but the the show itself, the, for being a CW show, is, I mean, they push it to some dark places for a dystopian thing. And I mean, at this point, everyone's so old that it's not even really young adult anymore. Yeah, the um, yeah, that's one of the things the author talked about. She sort of let them ha- have their way with it, so that way it could stand on its own. I've read the books. I <laughs> let them have their way. It's not even. I'm telling. You, it's like. <laughs> it's like she wasn't even part of it. It's crazy how different I've, it got. I've only um, read the books. I haven't really seen many of the series just because you know I don't have much time to watch cable anymore. But um, so, do you think dystopians a genre that's going to stick around, or do you think uh, it's sort of a moment in time thing? No, I think it'll stick around. I think maybe the the young adult craze where they were all the same, where it was this special chosen person, and they have to rise against the order. I think that kind of stuff might go away. And it seems to have to be. I mean, they keep trying to release the next Hunger Games, and instead they're releasing the next Bond. Right. But you know, they're, they're doing the wool wool as a TV TV series, and I think that'll be a fresh breath of air for people in the genre who are like, oh, like there's more adult stuff in this in this. Like, why is every hero always a teenager? There's all these adults around and, and stuff. So I think that'll kind of help bring breathe new life into it and. That's a good thing because it is a very interesting subgenre, and I mean, I thought, as I said, I have a book that I hope to release that's that's in the subgenre and is very much for adults only. So I hope it keep it comes back strong. All right, so you um, you know, back to the other question. This is clearly a space opera um, novel as well. So what do you think um, about space opera that appeals to readers? I mean, I think it's the same thing that that pirate ships appeal to readers. You know, it's this this broad sense of epic freedom and battles out in the middle of, of nowhere and kind of the freedom to do whatever you want that really appeals to people in space opera. And then, of course, like 
there's nothing better in books than conflict and friction and being able to set up these epic scope battles in space, planets exploding like in Star Wars, like that. It's the kind of stuff that is absolutely not real or not happening on our world right now. Where whereas like an AI type of story, you're watching it happen right now in real life. That kind of technology, sort of being on the cusp of that type of technology, but we're nowhere close to ships battling in space like in Star Wars with lasers. And I think people are really able to escape into that whole new world. Okay. So what is it uh, in this subgenre that's your biggest pet peeve? What's the thing that you see other authors doing um, that, that you don't like in the genre? Uh, there's a lot of bug aliens. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been seeing that since Starship Troopers. And I think, I think it's easy to have that mindless hive brain enemy. And it's always easy to have the clear Luke style hero versus the very evil villain. And that doesn't appeal to me as much as basically a game of Thrones type setting in space where no one's really a good guy. Everyone's kind of out for their own interests or the hero of their own story. And I, those are the type of villains that I really get behind are the hero of their own story thing. And I, it's a big problem I've had with most of the Marvel movies until Thanos who, they actually made the, he's the hero of his own story. He doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. And instead of just painting him as super evil, they sort of make you sympathize with him a little bit by showing his history and stuff. And that, that's the kind of stuff that appeals to me over just a faceless or clearly very evil and wrong villain. Okay. So um, who do you think does space opera, right? <sighs> who do you think? I mean, right now, I would have to say the guys doing The Expanse. I mean, I, st- up to, I stopped reading the books once there was a show because most books don't get made into a high-budget, awesome right. show. So, so it seems like at that point, I'll read something else and not spoil the show for myself. And I think they're doing it great in that there are all these different factions. None of them are really evil. None of them are really good. They're all just kind of out for themselves trying to survive. And that that's the kind of space opera that okay. I love. All right. Well, enough about your books, Rhett. So shameless plugging is over. What are you reading in the genre of science fiction? <laughs> audiobooks count, obviously. What am I reading? So funnily enough, as I'm really big into marketing audiobooks, I can't get into listening to it. It might just be because I always try at work and it's hard for me to focus <laughs> while I'm working. But reading-wise right now, I'm actually doing a lot of editing for people. I'm sort of working on building a publishing house. So that's what I've been working on is reading those and editing those submissions that we've contracted. And as far as what book I'm reading on my Kindle, I've been trying to start The Embers of War by Gareth Powell, which started really good. And I hear only, only great things. So that's the only, the book that I'm not publishing that I've been reading. And and then I was reading Altered Carbon a little bit after the show came out because I kind of – I was interested in seeing what a book turning into a Netflix series sort right. of took. So that was fun to see. And they – I mean up to what I read, they kind of really recreated the book pretty faithfully, which, which was cool to see. But – a lot of my reading right now, because I work and 
and write and stuff is just sort of research for my own stuff. So I'm actually finishing up right now. I'm about, you know, I got an hour left on the audiobook. Um, Edward D. Hudson's um, We Happy Few, which every time you talk about the Shakespearean vibe, like his has that too. It sort of has that Regency pirate story set in space. So yeah. that might be something you check out as well. And it'll, I'll throw that okay. in your notes. It's uh, it's good so far. Yeah. Can you mess with I didn't realize that was even science fiction. I thought it was kind of an alt history type thing. No, it's actually science fiction set in space. So basic premise is the uh, the English were dissatisfied with the way things were going and they founded a new empire <laughs> in space. Oh, so that's that's not the thing that they're making into that weird video game with people in white masks? No. Oh, okay. That's why I was I was very confused. <laughs> so I'll I'll get you a link though if you're interested. It's it's pretty good so far. The start was a little bit slow, but uh, mostly it was because it was jumping around chronologically, and just with my head injury, I get confused too easy. So yeah, and that's how how the circuit is, where it kind of starts slow, and you have to be introduced to four characters. So I'm definitely into the slow build. So that does sound like something I would like. All right. So uh, finally, we like to remember the science that makes science fiction fun. So is there any new scientific breakthrough you're following or excited by? Um, I mean, I like the water on Mars thing because I keep saying in my books that we find water on Mars and build colonies there. (laughs) So it's kind of making that more plausible, which is always good when you're a writer to have science sort of back up what you're writing okay so that's that's the main thing right now all right so the um the one i was watching is that um, the name of the article is nanotech powers this super sensitive um microphone which is not the best worded title but i didn't pick it so from the article the trouble with microphones is that they don't just hear they have to listen powering the mic in its single processor means using energy and energy means batteries and battery means charging the, this new microphone like system hears more like the way our own ears do so it requires little or no power and could help fill the void with voice responsive machines um not sure if that's something everyone really wants but but it's there so this device is called a tri bow electric auditory sensor and it works with what's called the tribal triboelectric effect essentially when two surfaces rub together and create a charge they're still trying to figure out why this happens but uh, what matters more to engineers is that it happens reliably Uh, so basically these new microphones this is my interpretation will push along the development of uh, better hearing aids and nanotech in general Uh, this might not seem like a big thing i think but every step towards scientific breakthroughs of this type will ultimately lead to the holy grail for science fiction and for space travel, which would be medical nanites. Um, I believe uh, that that's going to be the one breakthrough that'll be a catalyst for extraterrestrial habitation. So if we can compensate for the harshness of life after Earth, then colonizing the stars isn't just a pipe dream. And that was from an article on space.com. So cool. I found that <laughs> I lost a lot of hearing uh, when I was in Iraq with the uh, with the IEDs. So for me, like hearing aids are on the, the radar for me because I just got issued some. So okay. so uh, when I saw that article, I was like, "Ooh, I have to read. But uh, all right. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Uh, so before we let you go, Rhett, uh, can you tell listeners where they can find you? And as usual, his links will all be in the show notes. Um, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. I use that a little bit. I use Facebook mostly. I forgot what my author page is even listed as. Let me check. I think it's just, yeah, so it's just author Rhett C. Bruno. Um, I have a website, rhettbruno.com, and 
I'm happy to answer any emails. I always like talking to people. I offer some free stuff if, if you sign up. And yeah, I mean, those are the best ways to reach me. If you really want to open a dialogue, I'm not that big on posting publicly stuff like that. So if you want to open a dialogue about any of my books or ask a question or like we talked about, ask about writing my old fantasy book, you know, just email me anytime. I'm always pretty much always on it because I do run a lot of science fiction and fantasy platforms and stuff. I'm always dealing with a lot of authors. So pretty much always on email and yeah. All right. So all of that will be in the show notes. And if you want to contact him via email, uh, that link for contact form will be on his website. And uh, not to correct the guest, but your actual Facebook address is facebook.com backslash author Rhett Bruno with no C. Oh, okay. Um, On my shortcuts, it has a C. Well, when you type it in, it has a C, but the actual web address, oh, okay. it doesn't. And you can find us at our website, www.sfshenanigans.com, on Twitter at SFS underscore show. And we really should find our login and start uh, actually interacting there. Mostly, we just have our podcast automatically post. So if you've messaged <laughs> us there, we are sorry, but we do answer emails. And our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. And we have a Facebook group group that is facebook.com backslash groups backslash sf shenanigans thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for chris winder i'm jr hanley and this was the sci-fi shenanigans podcast we'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh, in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.